And I think part of integrated care is this uh, soft, kind, compassionate rebellion against compartmentalizations um, and uh, separations or fragmentation. To use a Ben Miller word, we are fragmentation fighters in that sense. I'm going to write that down, Deepu, yeah. and like, needlepoint that on a pillow. What? So Deepu is going to needlepoint that as well. I would just, uh, I would pay to see you guys do needlepoint here on the podcast. That, that, that would be outstanding. Yes. I can tell by the movement Deepu just made that he has no idea what needlepointing actually is. <laughs> yes. He looked like he was kind of power walking. Do not, do not expose me like that, Christina. <laughs> All right. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us once again. My name is Naftali Serrano, and this is the Integrated Care Podcast, the official podcast of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I'm the chief executive officer of uh, our association, and I'm joined by our uh, fellow podcasters today who will introduce themselves here in a moment. But we want to thank you for listening in. This podcast has been going now for... um, Man, I think it's almost two years now, and we're so excited to have a growing audience out there that's really interested in integrated and team-based care. Uh, Folks have given us some great feedback, including at a recent conference in Denver, Colorado, about how they love to check in with what's going on in the world of integrated care, dig deep on some topics, and really just feel like a part of the larger community of folks who are really interested in making uh, team-based care and integrated care uh, the standard of care across the United States. So we're happy to have you join us. Um, I will uh, apologize ahead of time here. If, if you feel my, like my voice is a little bit of a copycat of Deepu George today, uh, <laughs> it's only because I have a cold and my voice actually probably sounds better because Deepu's rich, deep bass tones Uh, which I love listening to on this podcast are only, I can only replicate them with a cold. So uh, that's why I sound the way I do. In any case, let's have our podcasters say hello here. Uh, Christine Borst uh, is in Denver, Colorado, actually. Christine, say hello. Hello. Actually, Colorado Springs, we moved. And I have to say, we've had a day and a half clouds this week and people are getting a little stir crazy without seeing the sun for about 12 hours. So I think everybody in the Midwest should feel really bad for us right now. (laughs) Yeah, there's a whole lot of groans in most of the country right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we have to the south of uh, Christine Deepu George. Good morning or good afternoon or wherever you are. I am uh, talking to you from McAllen, Texas, and I'm happy to be back. I took like a two-month hiatus, I think, from the last two episodes life and work got in the way, mostly work got in the way, um, because this is a nurturing part of my life coming to this conversation every month. And so um, I am back from my dose. Awesome. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, And of course, our good old friend, uh, just a little bit north of Deepu, uh, Grace. Grace, say hello. Hello, this is Grace Wilson in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where I am the behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine Residency. And like Deepu, I was away for the last couple months, so I'm really pleased to be back with you. Uh, and really, exactly what you said, Deepu, life and work. So we're moving into interview season here in the medical education world. We just right. had our first interview day this week, had our first six applicants come through, and it's always a really exciting 
I love still being on the kind of academic calendar because, you know, when you were in school, it was always, okay, I feel the passage of time. I know what my next milestone is going to be. And now that I'm in medical education, I still kind of have some of that same rhythm. Ritual. Yeah, ritual. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of rituals, I thought a good kind of lead-in question for us today, since we're moving into the holiday season, would be to share briefly about just a favorite family tradition or ritual that you have around the holiday season. Uh, so I'll, I'll offer mine up first just because it's on my mind because my sister-in-law and I just accomplished this task. Um, but we buy matching Christmas pajamas for all the grandkids every year. Um, and that's their one present they can open on Christmas Eve. So then when they're all getting ready for bed and getting ready for Santa and the excitement is high, they're all in their little matching clothes and it's completely adorable in my family we have a six-year-old a five-year-old a four-year-old three two-year-olds and a one-year-old and so it is a lot of little christmas jammies (laughs) that is that's awesome uh like how do you how do you get all these pajamas like do you have like a go-to pajama place for kids that you go to or you just sometimes we get them at the children's place sometimes we get them at carter's but this year we kind of hit the jackpot and we found them at marshall's which if you ever shop at marshall's you just never know what they're gonna have or what sizes they're gonna have but we happened to find every single size that we needed at a marshall's a couple weeks ago so me and elisa really hit our home run there that is amazing is this yeah. podcast sponsored actually by Marshalls? <laughs> it should be. <laughs> it Give them a call. <laughs> Marshalls. Oh, so many potential sponsors. Well, that's, I think that's a great uh, lead-in topic. I, I'm curious to hear what the rest of you guys have as far as uh, favorite holiday traditions. So we, um, I think my kids are six, four, and almost two. And so they're getting to that age where we can really start doing fun things. Um, and one of the things that we started last year was picking off, um, I don't know if you guys have this in your area, but different trees in public places where there are kids in the community who um, have a need for, um, they just, we just, there's an organization that wants to make it a really special Christmas for the kids. And so our kids each pick one, um, one of the kids off the tree. Usually they're picking like, a girl who's six, because I'm a girl who's six, you know, or whatever. And then um, we all as a family go to the store and buy the presents on these kids' wish lists. And then the kids help us wrap them. And we have to have a conversation, which, like, why isn't Santa doing it for them? And I'm like, okay, this thanks, thanks, everybody for making this lie up. But so, you know, we have the conversation about how parents help and sometimes they can't. And so I think it's really good for the kids amidst all of the stuff that they have, you know, they, they're very well off. Um, and I'm like, you know what? It's good for you in this time to not only got all of your toys that you don't need from the house, but to wrap these things up for other kids and then to take them and place them at the tree. I think it just gets them really in the giving spirit, which is really hard when you're little and you're just used to, you know, aunts and uncles and everybody getting you everything you need. So, yeah. Cool. All right, I guess it's my turn. So I think my favorite thing in the last couple of years is really figuring out what each holiday would look like for me. Because one, growing up, I grew up as a preacher's kid, as some of you may know. So our family just really went with the flow of the church. So we never had our own little family thing that we would do because, um, you know, Christmas is like the the tax season for priests, you know, like if you're an accountant, <laughs> so, dude, you are busy. 
<laughs> so we were like Christmas Eve, New Year's, midnight service, and Christmas morning, we were with some family in church. And the past couple of years, I've just done different things with community that I've been part of or friends and dear ones that have been a big part of my life. I did break away from tradition last year, and I went away, what I call, into the wilderness during Thanksgiving. I went on a silent retreat. Um, where there's a place like uh, an hour from here. Uh, would just run by these group of priests. You just go, they give you a little cottage and you do whatever you want. They feed you three times a day. Um, and so this year I have friends and family that I'm going to spend it with here. Uh, so my tradition is really having no tradition and just discovering <laughs> things every year. I love that. And you know, DP, you, you made me think of something. I um, am in a medical marriage and that really influences our time around the holidays because we never know. And I think that might be why we don't have a solid tradition like on Christmas Eve or Christmas day because we never know if he's gonna be around. So I think this is one of the things that works because we can do it in the time period between Thanksgiving right. and Christmas and you know, teaching that flexibility like, oh, sometimes Christmas might be on December 18th because that's when daddy's home from work or whatever. So I feel you Deepu on that. That's right, Santa's coming on the 18th. Right, and that's okay. <laughs> That's fantastic. And actually, your, your last two comments sort of uh, hint at a couple of things we were talking about. One is our topic of the day, obviously, which is uh, spirituality and integrated care. So, Deepu, your, your sort of experience growing up and experiencing the holidays brings that to mind. Uh, but then also we were talking before the podcast started uh, around Christine's elation about uh, having a day to herself uh, or some time to herself this morning without having to get the shuttle the kids off to you know, to their respective places in the morning and uh, how we all need these life hacks, right, to make things happen. And I can relate to that quite a bit because uh, I'm also in a medical marriage and that's the reality of life. Uh, we don't have routines, basically. <laughs> and so you have to develop these flexible habits and routines and things that make life work, including the holidays. So whenever it falls on the... Uh, uh, the best scheduled day for my wife's work schedules, emergency physician. Uh, what we do is we have, a, you know, we, we buy a tree, we decorate it. And the tradition is not just a decoration, but that we decorate it with the, uh, I don't know if you guys know the Alvin and Chipmunks uh, mm -hmm. record. Well, it's a record because originally it was a record. But um, so we put it on and we hear Alvin talking about, you know, missing his two front teeth. And yeah, it just always puts us in a little bit of the Christmas uh, spirit. Yeah, that's my that's really the the main routine. Whatever else happens after that point is really just totally random. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thanks for checking in. I, I wanted to acknowledge, um, and I wrote a little bit about this in the um, letter that I sent to members just a few weeks ago. Uh, this is a really busy time of year, so I'm imagining our listeners are just experiencing the crunch of uh, all the stuff that you're trying to get done before the holidays, uh, through the holidays, and for a lot of organizations also just planning ahead for 2020. I know for us at CFHA, that's what we're knee-deep in, is really just preparing ourselves for what uh, for the work that's going to be accomplished in 2020. So uh, I just think it's important to acknowledge as a community that that, yeah, stuff gets busy around this time of year and there's a lot of uh, strain. And then when you get that one extra uh, patient consult at the end of the day, 
or you get that one really complicated situation, or you get folks who uh, clinically you're seeing that also struggle in the holidays. It, it can make things even even worse. So I wanted to just sort of take a moment to acknowledge that. Uh, I don't know if you guys can attest to how how you're feeling this time of year, professionally and personally, uh, but certainly I, I certainly have a sense of that. No, I'm right there with you because this is uh, end of the year interview season. Uh, so we've been interviewing for actually four or five weeks. Uh, and so every Tuesday and Wednesday really goes to that. Um, and somehow like new projects emerge right around this time <laughs> in the midst of everything else that's going on. Um, and then, you know, we cover clinic during the holidays as well. So um, figuring those out. So it's a blur, like after CFHA till first two weeks of January, it's like a blur for me. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was just the beginning of October. And so I'm not really sure how now it's almost December. Truly. And I feel like, yeah. you know, we, we have our already busy schedules. And then the other day it dawned on me, I'm like, wait a minute, it's almost Thanksgiving. I have to make a magical holiday season for my family. And it's, it's, it's just a lot. It's too much. And so I told them earlier, I, uh, life hack for me was to pre-order all of our Thanksgiving food um, from Whole Foods this year. And we were doing like Deepu did last year, just getting a cabin and escaping because it's like, you know what, we've got to, at some point you just have to take a breath and say, okay, what do I actually have to get done? What is the most important? Right. Um, because we do, you know, our patients at this point and the people that we work with are going to be, there's just that, all that extra stress that the holidays bring up. Um, and especially, you know, if they've lost someone or if they're, you know, if they're going through a transition, this is a really hard time for that. So, you know, there's, there's a bit of our own self that we need to save so that we have the energy, the extra energy that's needed. Yeah. yeah and, absolutely. and even in patient care, there's, we've, I've seen a lot of consoles in the past few weeks that like the, one of the main concerns or triggering factors is the fact that holidays are coming up and things are difficult because it's their first Thanksgiving without a loved one or this particular time is difficult because of, of, of previous difficulties that they've had in families or whatever it may be, right? So this is a, a interesting time. Yeah, it is. And uh, I think the challenge actually is uh, related or at least ameliorated in part by what we're going to talk about today, mm -hmm. right? It's finding that center. Um, and so uh, we're going to center our conversation today on spirituality and integrated care. Um, we're directed towards a patient focus, but uh, I think a lot of what we'll talk about actually is stuff that uh, sort of falls into the category of physician heal thyself. Right. So how we actually uh, find that center as clinicians um, and how we um, apply our values essentially to uh, sifting through all the demands and challenges of life. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, before we get there, uh, let's just have a quick uh, news and notes section. All right, so uh, news and notes, we just have a brief uh, foray into this today. So I just want to let folks out there know a little bit about what we're thinking about here at CFHA headquarters. We've got really a lot in store for 2020, led by an effort to create a, a basically an online platform. We haven't come up with a name for it yet, but we're thinking something like CFHA Learns, something like that. But in any case, it's going to be a place where CFHA members can uh, produce content that uh, is valuable to other CFHA members. 
So it could be things like uh, the basics of uh, doing consultation in primary care settings. It could be uh, topic areas on um, doing family interviews or really specialized topics like uh, how you how you interview residents and train them up in uh, to to be good members of a care team. You know, so there's all sorts of ways in which we can use this learning platform. So we're really excited about it. So keep an eye out in 2020 for that. One of the other things we're excited about is this um, integrated care uh, site map that we're developing. Um, we actually should have that out uh, before the end of the year, but it'll be populated through 2020. And what's cool about that is it's going to be a map where you'll be able to look across the United States at all the sites that, that are providing integrated care and search into those sites and see what kind of services they're offering. Um, there's really a bunch of different applications from a research standpoint. Certainly there's applications, but also for just from a practical standpoint for consumers who are looking for, uh, you know, integrated care uh, centers to receive care uh, or providers who are trying to help patients connect when they move uh, to other sites to provide um, those sorts of services. So we're really excited to be able to provide these services. These sorts of efforts are there because of... Uh, the support of CFHA members. So we're excited about those things. So keep an eye out for those things. You can always check uh, our family of websites, uh, starting with our main website, cfha.net. That's our membership website. And then, of course, our news website, integratedcarenews.com. And then last but not least, of course, we are excited to be developing some really cool things for you at our annual conference in Philadelphia in 2020. This is October um, of 2020. Um, and there's some cool things going on. For example, uh, there's actually a psychiatry conference. It's, I'll have to ask for forgiveness or, or forget their name here, but it's essentially the American Association of Community Psychiatry. And they're actually hosting their conference right around the corner from CFHA's conference in Philadelphia at the exact same time. And so it's going to offer us some opportunities to do a little bit of collaboration and really connect with a group of uh, community psychiatrists across the country. So we'll have um, some really cool things happening there, as well as potentially some follow-up with the um, well-received Primary Care Behavioral Health Forum, the PCBH Community Forum that occurred after our conference on the Sunday of the conference is uh, very likely going to be a follow-up to that uh, at our next conference. So some really cool things. Uh, for more on that, of course, just to keep tabs on that, uh, check out our conference site, integratedcareconference.com. All right, so that's all we have for news and notes. Let's get into our main topic area, which is spirituality in integrated care. And I think the first thing I want to throw out to this group here is, you know, it's always struck me. And in fact, this was one of the first things that I observed as I, as I dipped my toes into doing integrated care work is how more natural it feels in a sort of team-based uh, whole person care setting for spirituality to emerge as an area of either focus or just a piece of the puzzle that you integrate in into a, a conceptualization and a conversation with the patient. I really felt like it felt different than a specialty mental health setting. Um, and I suspect that part of that is just the idea that we are uh, touching the patient's body, you know, in in these encounters, as well as they're uh, talking about their life and behavior 
etc. And so it almost sort of, I don't, I don't know if that's the thing, but I'm just wondering what you guys think about that. Why is it that it's so sort of natural, it seems like, in, when we're doing whole person team-based care, is it just our, the way we think of things in a biopsychosocial model? Why is it so natural to talk about spirituality in, in this context? I think uh, one of the things would be, uh, I know like I live in South Texas where uh, religion uh, plays a strong role, um, Catholicism in general and other denominations and other religious practices. And I also come from India where religion also plays a big role. And I think health and spirituality tends to be connected for a lot of people. So they do put a lot of trust and maybe some trust in doctors in the medical system, but a lot of people begin to rely on uh, faith as a medium to help them through difficult times. I think people find faith sometimes in their health journeys that they haven't found before. I think it was just in the air for us to grab and connect. You know what I mean? It's it's one of those things that you're talking and you're discovering and then you suddenly realize it has so much energy behind it. You cannot not integrate that into the visit or into the conversation. I think another piece of it is when we're approaching patients in this way, we are already saying this is more than just your health or this is more than just your mental health. And so in some practices that I've been to that were very early or patients who are very early in their exposure to the idea of integrated care, even to them, if you bring up spirituality, there's a little bit of a, wait, why are we talking about this? I was here to get my refill on my blood pressure medication. And similarly in traditional mental health, I think sometimes there's a, well, I'm just here to talk about my depression. So why would we bring up, are you going to call me crazy for my religious beliefs? Uh, And so just the fact that we're telling people, hey, we're interested in all of the parts of your life and all of the nuanced ways that your health spans different dimensions of yourself. Uh, And so I think that just really opens up the possibility and the flexibility to address spirituality alongside, you know, physical health and mental health. And it's why there's such a a natural expansion to go from biopsychosocial to biopsychosocial spiritual. I I agree. And I think it's just the general move from compartmentalizing all of these different areas of our being to wait, there are little doors that connect all of these different sections and it's okay to talk about that because it does matter. Yeah. Yeah. And as I said, when I first started doing this work, walking into exam rooms and working with patients, I I think I was just struck by that. And I think you're right um, that I think because we're not, we're, we're intentionally not compartmentalizing, we're, we're trying to see what the interplay of the different components of a person's life are, that it makes it very natural. And you know, it's interesting, Deepu, because you said that South Texas is an area where faith is very strong. The truth is that the more I've kind of traversed the United States, I'm not sure that there's an area where spirituality in general is not important. Oh, a component, um, yeah. No, it's absolutely. really, you know, there may be areas where there's concentrated uh, religiosity, right? And that's a right. key sort of distinction to make when you're addressing these areas, the difference between religiosity, which is more associated with institutional religion, and spirituality, which is a global term that involves institutional religion, but it goes beyond it as well beyond for yeah. uh, folks' relationship with the world and uh, the universe and uh, larger concepts of, of how they fit in that. And so I think it's been interesting, at least in my career, to see the shift, because I think in the beginning of my career, there was, at least in psychologist circles, some hesitancy about addressing spirituality. Uh, 
now it's swung to the place where it's actually like it kind of be like irresponsible not to address spirituality if that's a a really important concern related to the issue you're treating the patient with. I think so. And I think uh, that broader definition of spirituality helps us catch so many other things. And uh, Bridget is not here, but one of the comments that she talked about was she often asks patients, uh, do you have any spiritual, religious beliefs or belief system that is important to you? And if they sort of say an emphatic no, she said she often follows up with uh, like any motto or things that guide them, such as be kind to others and then people often open up and said i found that some people have negative reactions to those terms so i try to make it more broad and to me even like uh, there was a podcast episode that i listened to uh, uh, from on being where she was interviewing a scientist and an atheist and so even in that atheist uh, mindset there's a set of practices and beliefs that they hold on to that is desirable and meaning meaningful for them all right. So the question is, how do you spend time with that? How do you sit with that? Um, how does that uh, show up in your, in the frequency of your behaviors during the week? Um, do you meditate? Do you sit and write? Do you read? Uh, do you talk about it with somebody? It's, you know, it's basically operationalizing your belief system, which gives you a sense of solace and peace. Absolutely. And I think yeah. validating that it, that spirituality, you can, you don't have to go to church, you know, two hours a right. week. It, you still count as having some sort of belief system or connection to whatever that is for you. And I think that that can really improve the richness of the patient's life too, helping them realize, oh yeah, I guess I do have that, you know, that, that is something I have. Yeah. And I think part of integrated care um, is this, the undercurrent that we bring is that we want to be committed to the indivisible whole, right? Like the whole of the person. Um, this is really not uh, directly connected to integrated care, but uh, connected to the larger thing. Gandhi in 1935, I read this quote as I was preparing for this. He said something where he said, I could not be leading a religious life unless I identified myself with the whole of mankind and that I could not do unless I took part in politics. So the whole gamut of men's activities today constitutes an indivisible whole. You cannot divide social, economic, political, and purely religious work into watertight compartments, right? And I think part of integrated care is this uh, uh, soft, kind, compassionate rebellion against compartmentalizations um, and uh, separations or fragmentation. Uh, To use a Ben Miller word, we're fragmentation fighters in that sense, right? Ooh, I like that. I'm going to write that down, Deepu. Yeah. That was a beautiful phrasing of that. Go ahead, Grace. I think you were going to say something. Oh, no, I was just going to say I need to write down and like needlepoint <laughs> that on a pillow what Deepu just said about that we are pushing back on the fragmentation and that that is the piece and thinking about the different layers. So one of the things that I was thinking about when I was thinking about spirituality and integrated care is that we are, in essence, collaborators. That is core to the very central of who we are. And we are also in the ways that a lot of us are practicing kind of generalists. And so we recognize what we can offer. And a lot of times what we can offer is starting a conversation and asking questions and helping the patient um, just to sort of think through and process some things. But we're also not going to be the person 
typically who gives someone answers about their spiritual tradition or their beliefs. And so just as we would defer to the expertise of the medical provider for someone's biomedical health, we can defer to the expertise of their spiritual advisors for the the expertise of their spiritual health. And so collaborating with and connecting with those spiritual leaders in our communities um, and understanding and knowing who are those central people in our patients' lives can be another extension of our collaborative spirit and ability to work together and expand our team and how powerful um, to be able to look at those leaders as part of our team as well. No, I was just agreeing emphatically with what Grace said. Great. So Deepu is going to needlepoint that as well. I would just, <laughs> uh, I would pay to see you guys do needlepoint here on the podcast. That, that, that would be outstanding. While we do the podcast? While you do the podcast. Yes. <laughs> I can tell by the movement Deepu just made that he has no idea what needlepointing actually is. <laughs> yes, it looks like he... Do not, do not expose me like that, Christina. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry. He looked like he was kind of power walking. More yeah, than... yeah. <laughs> um, in grad school, I'd actually worked on an initiative where we partnered with local community churches to um, give those churches and their congregations health data, health information, screenings, things like that, so that we could connect, you know, that almost a trifecta of like the spiritual, the health, and then the behavioral health. Um, in some of these underserved communities, and it was a very cool project. Yeah, and I, I think I think one of the things that, and I, I just want to say I really appreciate this conversation because it's actually helping me put some things together. I'm thinking why why is this such an easy thing to talk about when you're in the mindset of integrated care, and and it makes total sense what you guys are saying that these attributes that we bring as core. Uh, foundations to our approach to patient care and to the way we organize teams um, uh, leads naturally into being able to talk about spirituality. And I think one of the other pieces that I think about is that we also know that health behaviors are so fundamentally tied to health beliefs. And those health beliefs, uh, because they are closely tied with our understanding of our own mortality, right? Um, and our physical well-being are really strongly tied with our spiritual beliefs, um, our beliefs about the world, about how we fit in the world, about what illness means, and about what health means, and, and in fact, what even a definition of health is. In fact, that's one of the interesting things that I've encountered, and this is where spirituality and culture also overlaps here, but you know, when you have uh, uh, a sort of a, for lack of a better word, Eastern European uh, or North American approach to health or definition of health in an exam room, say like a physician or primary care provider, interfacing with, let's say, a uh, South American understanding of health that's influenced heavily by, say, uh, Catholic understanding or localized Catholic understanding of health, say from someone from uh, Mexico or Central America or South America, um, you know, it's always struck me that one of the missing pieces of the conversation is, well, what do you believe health is? What, what define, what's your definition of health? Because uh, I've involved in these situations on teams where uh, you have a physician trying to lower a patient's A1C and, because that's their definition of health right? That's the metric that they're using. And then you have a 
patient, let's say uh, a Catholic Mexican, whose uh, understanding of health is that which God kind of fates me to have, right? And so their their goal is not necessarily to lower the A1C. In fact, they may see their diabetes as even a natural sort of outgrowth of what their life is supposed to be like, or that they just is something they have to cope with or work through. Um, and uh, sort of uh, what, what you call in, in uh, Hispanic culture, fatalismo, uh, just this understanding well, that's that's just the way it is. And then this disconnect that happens in the room because those top those issues are not addressed. And spirituality becomes actually a really important piece of that conversation when you're able to to help the patient understand what their actually actual core belief is, and then shape that help belief from from within their belief system. Right? Talk to them about how you know, perhaps this is an opportunity where God is providing a way to work through this situation and that working towards a lower A1C may be part of your spiritual growth as opposed to antithetical to, you know, uh, what you're working on. So it's just an example of the way that I think um, it becomes very natural for us to, to uh, address these. Now, now, the thing that I'm wondering from your guys' experience is how you approach uh, sort of asking the right questions in this area, assessing in this area. What are the kind of uh, things even that you might train, either a resident or a behavioral health trainee, to ask in this area to kind of maneuver this area? Cause it's not an easy area to, to kind of step into. You guys have yeah. some thoughts on that? I think one of the things that um, I often ask um, and doing this podcast, Reading Through Bridget's comments and some of the sources that you sent Naftali as in preparation I was like all right I need to make this more routine but I do ask a lot of the times uh, does faith or any kind of spiritual practice inform your life or your approach to health that's one of the things I ask patients all the time um, and so that usually opens up a conversation or if they say no uh, similar to Bridget's question something like are there any rituals that you repeatedly do that or your family does that gives you a sense of peace, connection, and meaning, right? And I think one of the things that I've been really um, interested in is just spirituality as an extension of a meaningful life and whatever that may be. And meaning is like this protective layer that sort of cases or, or sort of envelops us against trauma and other things that uh, comes um, as we experience life. Um, I don't know if you guys know the work of Pauline Boss. She is a family therapist, uh, trained by Carl Whitaker. And she talks a lot about this idea called ambiguous loss. And she, um, it's, the, it's the loss where you experience um, physically the person is absent or present, but mentally and spiritually, you're sort of not there, right? So this, you sort of see Alzheimer's dementia, um, and then uh, in cases where there are uh, people go missing, you, you don't quite have an ending and all of that. And one of the things that she speaks about is how meaning can transform that traumatic experience in different ways. A story that connects all of this for me is she had worked with the, the families of 9-11 who lost a loved one. And she remembered working with his mother and daughter, or mother and son, where the mom felt so guilty because the husband usually would have gone at an earlier time and that particular day 
he left home late and was in the building when the the plane said and he would have been safe if he felt if he followed the older schedule and so she struggled with that a lot and then a year or two later when um pauline met them again she met uh the little boy and the mom and the boy had grown up and then she talked to the mom and one of the things the mom said uh she said you know i thought about it again and again and i realized that he wanted to spend an extra 30 minutes with her that morning and that's why he stayed in bed with us and that's why um, he chose that morning with us before he left. And so suddenly something that was plaguing and traumatic uh, has a meaning. And I think that would be a spiritual breakthrough for that patient or that person, right? So how do we extend conversation, if not about spirituality, to what gives people meaning? Um, so I ask those questions and I usually go for that um, in my conversations with patients. Yeah, I'm curious in particular um, for residents and physicians who don't have a lot of time, right, um, and who may be afraid to ask questions because they, you know, afraid to use up a whole lot of the time they have. I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering how they could at least ask enough to know, hey, this is something to incorporate in my understanding of this individual and work with and with their health behaviors, et cetera. Is there a sort of a kind of a nice magic question that wouldn't necessarily elicit a 20-minute story? I, I, I <laughs> Before you got to the end of that, I had an answer. But, uh, you know, there's so much skill that goes into shaping yeah. the structuring it and so I think you have to pair those together but I do there's a few mnemonics that have been published in the literature you know doctors love to have an acronym for everything mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a, a few published uh, mnemonics for spiritual history taking that we can plug in in the show notes like one of them is called the CSI memo uh, mnemonic and so you ask like do your religious and spiritual beliefs provide comfort or are they a source of stress? Uh, the second one is, do you have spiritual beliefs that might influence your medical decisions? That's the I. Are you a member of a religious or spiritual community and is it supportive to you? Uh, and then do you have any other spiritual needs that you'd like someone to address? And so some of these structured mnemonics that are published in the medical literature, I think are a little more comfortable sometimes for our medical providers because they like to have their checklist. Some of them, they like to have, you know, here's exactly what I'm going to ask. Um, and like I said, there's a few of them that I have here. Uh, you know, a lot of this literature comes through palliative care because those patients are people who are facing end of life and the end of life is when we uh when we really come to face our own mortality and ask these questions and think about our beliefs because you're running out of time to come up with those answers and so there's a lot that's been published um in those areas so i tell my residents that i sort of hold this in in two spaces because on the one hand yeah, you have the pressures of a 15 minute encounter. On the other hand, when we're talking about something as central to someone's existential reality as their beliefs, sometimes we just have to go a little bit slower. And I remind them that you're not gonna be having this conversation with every patient every day. And so some of your encounters do go a little more quickly and then that builds in space for an encounter that needs to take a little longer. And it's that give and flow that's the art 
of what we do. And yes, there are time pressures, but if they can work on their own mindfulness of a provider, as a provider of being in that moment with that patient and listening to those beliefs, um, how healing and powerful that can be. So it's a combination of things, having a mnemonic and a plan, using their good structuring skills to shape the conversation, realizing that this is not a conversation that's going to happen every time with every patient, and then just really doing their best effort to be mindfully present for what are some of the most cherished central aspects of someone's reality. You know, we've actually been talking about this around my house a fair amount lately, Um my husband has had several encounters um, in his line of trauma surgery um, where patients came in that belonged to a certain religious group. And because of that, he was not able to do the life-saving things that he has been trained to do that would have easily saved their lives. And so, you know, after that, the, the, the community, the pastor of this group would come in and, you know, he was home at 10 o'clock one night when he was supposed to be home at eight because, he sat down with the, you know, to talk through all of these things and um, they gave him advice on what he, on other treatments to use and, you know, so how do we also validate maybe medical providers frustrations with some of these when it is, you know, when they aren't trained, you know, they're trained, he's trained to save lives in this situation. And yes, he will have a very respectful conversation, but then it's also, he gets home and thinks, you know, the patient didn't make it, you know, I I did wasn't home for dinner and now what do I do? So how can we sit with that too when there's that ambiguity with the providers? Yeah, and I, I think that, yeah, some of those situations are, you reach these impasses with, with patients um, and, and there's nothing you can do. However, to Grace's point, and by the way, I'd love to be a resident under Grace. Like if I went to another school, I'd want to be a resident under Grace. I mean, it's like fantastic. Uh, but like, you know, I, I think that it goes to Grace's point about how having, you know, giving credence to the context as the vehicle through which you're going to actually enact that um, foundational change, the intervention efficacy, et cetera. Uh, it's worth the time. It's mm-hmm. worth investing in it. Uh, the thing is being strategic about it, uh, how to, how to kind of dose and build that relationship over a series of visits and ask the questions as you go and strategically sometimes saying, okay, <laughs> this 15 minutes is going to go to this one area and we're not going to get a lot done. But, but this, I think will leverage future interventions, future things that we're going to work on health wise. Um, right. So I think that's really, really crucial. I think I'd remind residents that it, the, one of the privileges of being a family medicine primary care provider is that you have a long-term relationship with this patient. So you don't have to get all of this in one visit. You're not doing some large intervention, right? So these are pieces of who they are that they can collect over time and that can come into conversations and decision-making uh, in the long run. It's also, you know, what is the piece of your relationship that's going to make whatever decision and tough uh, calls that you have to make in the future more available to the patient? Mm-hmm. So the patient really gets a sense that, wow, this provider is curious and respectful of how I see the world. Then this other tough thing that he or she's asking me to do, um, I can see because of that trust, they're going to lean towards it much easier than just outright rejected when the doctor brings it up or, or the PA or the NP brings it up. That's right. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to say that I, I think um, as far as asking questions, uh, so I, I don't think, 
I don't know that there's a, a question that you can ask in every context and every situation. It's going to be patient-specific and even location-specific. So here in the South, for example, I think similar to where you are, uh, DP, uh, asking a question about a person's faith is like asking them what they ate for breakfast. You know, it's like, sure, you know. Um, uh, you still have to approach it very respectfully. Uh, but in general, what I do is I simply ask, um, are there a particular set of beliefs or faith uh, system that you use that help guide you in life and that help guide your health uh, decisions? And just asking a very basic question like that, uh, really, I, I will then assess based on the response. Like if a person's eyes light up, I'm like, okay, this is obviously a central piece. If someone says, uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, honey, I pray every day. You know, I woke up this morning and I prayed. And there, there I'm like, okay, that's a really core piece of how this person functions in the world. As we have health-related conversations, I'm going to keep this in mind. Back to what Christine was saying about kind of a, a bit of a self of the provider and the provider figuring this out. My interns, this have I don't know if some of this is because that they're young or, you know, or, or this is a universal experience, but definitely the more they ask patients about spirituality, the more they're put on the spot about their own spirituality. Mm -hmm. So they'll have patients say, are you a Christian? Or, you know, can I pray with you? And so one of the things I think that we should really encourage our listeners to, to think about is their own self of the spirituality and how are they going to handle those things when they come up? And I typically think there's not necessarily a right or wrong way to handle that or a perfect amount of disclosure. It depends a lot on the specific relationship between the provider and the patient. Um, but we have to find a way to navigate our own boundaries around that and knowing what we will say when a patient does put you on the spot or ask about your own spiritual beliefs. Yes, Grace. And I was just thinking that at, from a trainer perspective who's putting trainees out there in the behavioral health realm, the integrated behavioral health realm, um, something to think of if your patient if any of this conversation that we've been having you're like oh gross or something it's like okay maybe that's that's a little bit of a sign that it's time to do some work um self of the therapist self of the provider um to think okay that triggered me a little bit so would i maybe be less likely to follow that thread when i am in the room with a patient um when that clearly could be a, a huge sign of strength for them but i don't feel comfortable addressing it right mm -hmm. and i i remind residents too that it is by design of what you've chosen to do you are going to enter into these personal spaces of people's lives and it is your professional calling and part of your ethics to be aware of what your stances on issues are. It doesn't necessarily need to align with the patients. It can even be a more vulnerable stance, right? I um, uh, have a lot of these conversations around end of life issues. So I, I had to call a resident the other day and I said, I said, you know, you're fundamentally anxious when it comes to end of life issues and the anxiety itself is not bad but it sounds like the anxiety drives a series of decisions that you're doing for the patient, which is counter to what probably medical evidence suggests or even the patient wants. So I said, before you leave this training program, one of the things I want you to walk away with is a perspective on what you think about death and how do you want to approach death, right? Like it, that's where, so it, you sort of have these conversations around that. And if it is okay for a provider to say, I too get really, um, anxious or worried because I'm not quite sure 
uh, had how to handle this myself. So I'm in the sea with you. I'm in the struggle with you. You know, what I can do is radically align with you for the next few months as we walk through this. Or, or I do have a perspective. Um, help me understand what would help you strengthen your perspective. You know, those kind of questions. Uh, but the more you know where you stand, the easier it is to guide the other person uh, into those conversations. So just for the record, I'd love to be Deepu's uh, resident also. Yeah, I was Me awesome. too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if my residents really appreciate those hard hitting <laughs> questions. <laughs> oh, man. Well, fantastic. It's been a great conversation. Um, uh, we are at the end of our podcast. Before we do, just want to point you to our show notes because we will put some links in our show notes to some of the references here including uh, some of this acronym stuff, you know, Grace mentioned an acronym. There's an acronym that I'll post that's uh, called the HOPE acronym for spiritual assessment. So it gives these categories, uh, H-O-P-E, sources of hope, organized relation, personal, spiritual practices, and effects on medical care and end-of-life issues. So it gives you questions that you can ask if you're looking for a structured approach to Uh, addressing spirituality in your visits or just need some sample questions to think about. And then there's also some uh, web resources and articles that will point you to uh, so you can continue your education on this topic. Can I add something to the the end of that? So the the acronym or the mnemonic that Grace gave, one of the things that I appreciated about that is it actually speaks to spirituality's comfort and stress points, right? Because one of the things I do find reframing for patients in their health, faith, spiritual journey is their relationship with God. And I think sometimes spirituality or the way religiosity has been passed on to patients, there there tends to be this um, unhealthy relationship or a stressful relationship with what they hold us, their beliefs and what their behaviors are, and what their experiences are and their struggle with it. Um, so this idea that I'm uh, really angry at God and um, and therefore I don't I refuse to go to church, etc. Or I haven't really done a lot of these things and I'm anxious about that. So I've done a lot of things to work with patients to reframe those things. I usually use uh, Mother Teresa's example uh, to sort of legitimize some of their anger or their questioning of, of the divine. Um, the quick detour one of the things that happens with uh, mother Teresa's story is she uh really questioned the existence of god christ and other things uh, as she was dealing with all the things that she did every day and her spiritual director really revealed these things at the time of her uh, beatification and canonization process and then they were like well we don't know if we can really make her a saint and the way i think about it is she was so intimate personal and close with god that she had the freedom to be upset and angry at God. You get upset and angry at people you love the most dearly and you're the most closest to, right? So helping patients reframe that relationship or when patients tear up about uh, their lack of faith, I often point out the fact that what you're most anxious about is that you're not connecting with God tells me that you are totally connected with God, meaning your anxiety is a reflection of your desire to grow closer to God. Um, And so it is just quick reframes to help people get unstuck. Uh, That's one of the things that I've uh, noticed that I've had to do in visits, um, which is helping people uh, move away from 
unhelpful cognitions to more helpful behaviors. So. Yeah, which goes which goes back to the idea that uh, behavioral health professionals have in their toolkit. When you look at work that you were doing, as Christine pointed out, therapists itself, but also just work on working with diverse uh, patient populations uh, and um, having cultural competency, essentially, right? Uh, those mm. same types of skills are the same skills that you bring to bear to being relevant and aware in this area as well. Um, and it's sometimes difficult and challenging for sure, but without it, uh, we miss whole huge pieces of patients' lives as they're sitting there in front of us in the exam room. All right, I wish as usual that we could continue these conversations forever. We're very grateful for our audience, for you guys out there listening to us wherever you are. Uh, as usual, we have a sending thought uh, meditation, and usually it's Deepu who uh, uh, does that for us. So he'll lead us out again today. Uh, as he does so, I will just say on behalf of our team here at the CFHA podcast, Integrated Care Podcast, uh, thanks for listening. Deepu? This is a New Zealand version of a very well-known common prayer uh, from their Book of Common Prayers. Eternal spirit, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, source of all that is and that shall be, father and mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven. The hallowing of your name echo through the universe, the way of your justice be followed by the peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. In the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and testing, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. From the grip of all that is evil, free us for you reign in the glory of the power that is love thanks Deepu, and thanks you all we'll see you next month